This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of She Speaks Fire, Battling Shame, Reigniting Your Faith, and Claiming Your Purpose by spoken word poet Mariella Rosario and available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Cartographers, where we map the changing cultural landscape for 21st century Christians. Expect thoughtful conversations with hosts Bryce Hales and Ashley Hales, a pastor and a PhD, along with our guests to help you navigate a changing cultural landscape. Welcome back to the, the Cartographers. We are really excited today to be talking with Alan Noble. Alan is a, a professor of English at Oklahoma Baptist University, the editor of Christ and Pop Culture, and the author of a, a couple books, Disruptive Witness, You Are Not Your Own. And the book we're talking about today is called On Getting Out of Bed, The Burden and Gift of Living. Alan, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to have you. Thank you. I'm excited to have charted a course. See what you did there. <laughs> to be here because that's right. That's right. Alan, maybe help us understand how this book fits in with your previous books. Uh, wh where does this one come from? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting experience. So there is uh, a way of reading these books as a kind of trilogy, an unintended trilogy. You know, the first book, a disruptive witness, one of the things that I was, the phenomena that I was looking at was our tendency to be distracted and to distract ourselves. So I looked at Pascal, uh, among many other people, uh, as ways of explaining the human desire to distract ourselves from ourselves. Um, the phenomena that, you know, we are afraid to be alone because um, in part, because we're afraid of our sin nature. We're afraid of being alone with ourselves and having to face our sins and our need for a savior. And it's easier just to numb ourselves and distract ourselves. And the modern world is really good at helping us do that. So my first book was sort of made that argument. And as I was touring the country, that sounds really impressive. It wasn't nearly as impressive <laughs> as that. As I had opportunities to speak about the book and people came up to me and talked to me and they would ask me like, well, what are your secret practices for using technology so that you don't, you're not distracted all the time? And I was like, I don't know. I don't really have any. That's Andy Crouch's business. I don't, I don't, I, don't, I can't, <laughs> I don't have those secrets. And I realized, you know, I still distract myself and I don't think it's because I and and other many other people I know will use coping mechanisms distractions and I don't think it's because they're afraid of facing their sins so what is it and it really made me think hard about the way the contemporary world uh, is an inhuman environment. And that's where my second book comes out of. Um, you Are Not Your Own argues that we live in an inhuman environment, a, an environment that's not made for humans as God designed us. And because of that, we're constantly in friction, producing all kinds of anxieties and stresses and depression and, and all these sorts of things. So my second book sort of explores the sociological aspect of that. And this book uh, on getting out of bed 
says, I'm not going to talk about the sociology. It sets aside all the theoretical questions about why we're struggling and why we feel the way we do, and instead asks, what are we supposed to do? How do we get out of bed? Uh, and so I've been s- describing it as much more existentialist in in nature or or pastoral. Um, it's asking these basic fundamental questions because the sociological questions are super fascinating, right? Like what role did COVID have on our collective mental health? What role has social media had on the health, mental health of, of young girls, right? These are great and important questions, and I'm not asking those questions. Instead, I'm saying... When you suffer, because you are going to suffer mentally at some point in your life, what are you supposed to do? Yep, yep. No, I thought it it was, you know, it's a bold book in the sense that it is it is deeply personal. And though it what I love at one point actually in your book, you you speak about like here's where I should insert all of my, you know, all of my street cred to show that I belong to you as someone who has undergone mental affliction and you refuse to do that. So tell us a little bit about why that's important and how that actually helps our your reader begin to actually not simply empathize with you so much that they don't do anything. Yeah. So I went back and forth in this, you know, in writing the book, trying to figure out how much do I tell my story and how much do I not, you know, I want my reader to empathize and to be able to see themselves in what I write. But I also don't want, I didn't want this to be a book about me because it's fundamentally not about me. I mean, at the thesis, the thesis is that this is a common human experience. And so if I made this a, you know, uh, about me, a memoir, then I mean, that might be a really good book and it might be really interesting, but it's not what I wanted to do. And so I tip my hat and it's very clear that I've struggled with anxiety of some kind and struggled with mental illness of some kind, but it's also clear that it's it's not about me. And another thing I thought about too is that I didn't want people to read the book and be like, oh, well, he has this particular struggle, so this is a book about that, right? Uh, I wanted it to be... Uh, because you know part of my argument is that um it's not just mental illness that we have to talk about it's just it's mental affliction that's the phrase that i want to use mental affliction or mental suffering because sometimes it's not it goes undiagnosed sometimes it's undiagnosable but it's still human suffering and it's still mental suffering and that's the subject of the book i want to think about this idea just to take a step back to think about the idea of mental health Um, And we talk about mental health all the time. And actually, when we're talking about mental health, we're actually not often talking about health. We're talking about mental distress or um, mental unhealth, mental illness. Um, And you write all the way through the book, you know, we don't have cures for things like melancholy or anxiety or depression, a whole host of other issues. Um, So that, I guess, is one context is this whole idea of mental health we're not actually even talking about health most of the time because we're maybe we're not even sure what that looks like. What 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 would it look like to be mentally healthy or you know to holistically healthy? Um, and then the second part of that is just what we often see um, online, where you know at this version of kind of therapy speak, I'll say, um, where we we have used our pain as a platform and. Though we met, we as individuals may never move on from mental distress. Do we have to always perform it? You know, it becomes a personal brand. Um, so help help us understand 
maybe what, what might it look like to think about health, mental health, and not just mental illness? And secondarily, when we bring that out into a digital public square, uh, is there hope beyond simply performing our pain? If there is, it's really hard to do. Um, and that's, it's one of the things I bring up in the book. And one of the things that I anticipate will rub some readers the wrong way is that I acknowledge that for some people, they turn their suffering into, into a brand and they fall in love with their own suffering. It's very possible to fall in love with your own suffering. Nobody wants to admit that. Nobody, (laughs) nobody wants to say, well, like, this is part of my identity. This is my thing. But people do that. And there's a temptation. There are social pressures to turn any part of your identity into a, a, a brand, anything that you experience into a part of your identity. That's what I should say. And that I think is is problematic for one, one reason uh, among many is that if you fall in love with your own suffering and you see it as part of your identity or who you basically are, then it's going to be hard for you to get healing. And, you know, as you talk about mental health, um, if the idea is that you have some movement, you're journeying towards some place of healing, um, and you arrive at that place of healing, and then you look back and you say, but now who I, who am I? Because that was my identity. That's who I was. And so that's not a, that's not a, uh, um, a good place to be. And so I think all of us should be circumspect when we think about discussing our mental health or mental illness or mental disorders uh, publicly, that we don't um, turn it into a performance that handicaps our, uh, our, our healing process. Um, as far as what is, what is mental, you know, health look like? Um, I don't know. That's a great question. <laughs> when I get there, I'll let you know. I mean, okay. I suppose it looks like not thinking about your mental health. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's one. At least one version of it is that you're you're so preoccupied with with living life that you're able to not be preoccupied with with anxiety or depression or whatever disorder is is plaguing you. Um, I think that's probably a good, you know, just like when, um, like none of my teeth are bothering me right now, which is awesome. Uh, but it's when, when a tooth bothers me that all of a sudden I'm really, I'm hyper fixated on it. I'm like, I got to get to the dentist. I've got to, you know, so I suppose that's probably true with mental health as well. Mm-hmm. The freedom of self-forgetfulness, right? Yeah, that's right. Alan, I'd love to, um, kind of shift gears slightly here, um, as you know, I'm a pastor, and one of the things that I feel the need regularly to talk about in ministry, um, and I feel like I always have to apologize for using the term because I feel like it's so cheesy, but the reality that I am my brother's keeper, I think, is the is maybe the second question that's in, in, the, in the Bible, right? The first God comes and says, Adam, where are you? But the second question... He, he asks after Cain kills Abel is where's your brother and, and, and his response, am I my brother's keeper? And so it, it feels kind of cheesy. It always harkens back to like Rich Mullins for me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yet, and yet having said all of that, um, 
it's so essential in, and I think especially in the context that we find ourselves in where, um, you know, we could, we could talk about the causes, but just individualism is so prevalent in our thinking. And this is a concept you come back to in, in, on getting out of bed. And and you say your life is a witness to the value of your neighbor's life and your neighbor's life is a witness to the beauty of your life. And this can help ground us when we get lost in our hopelessness. And that strikes me as um, an incredibly countercultural idea. And reading it is really inspiring to me. But what what does that actually look like? And maybe even first, what is the church lost when it's lost the sense that we belong to one another? A lot. That's, That's a whole, that's a book. That's a book. I mean, to some extent, <laughs> that is my second book. To some extent, is you know, is is saying that we are not our own, but belong to Christ. And because we belong to Christ, we belong to the church. And because we belong to the church, we belong to individuals in there, in in a subsidiary way, not the same way as we belong to Christ, but in a in a real and meaningful way, we have obligations to one another. And one of the obligations is that when we go through periods of mental suffering, we don't get to check out and say, well, um, my suffering is so great that, um, that I give up. And this is one of the hard things that, uh, there are some hard truths that I express in this book that, uh, that will probably rub some people the wrong way. One of them I mentioned earlier, which is that you could fall in love with your suffering. Another is that the reality is when you um, go through a period of very dark suffering and you choose to give up, you, whether that's suicide or whether that's just checking out of life, you communicate to other people that that is a reasonable way to respond to suffering. And this is a hard truth because somebody who's in that place doesn't want another burden put on their shoulders that are already suffering tremendously. But it's a reality, right? Like it, it to, in, in one way, I, I, I'm sorry to give you this news, but, but this is fundamentally true because this is how humans work. When we see people acting in certain ways, it enters our imagination as a plausible way for us to act as well. But there's good news to this as well. And that good news is when we are going through periods of mental suffering and we choose to get out of bed and feed the dog and take the kids for a walk or feed the kids and take the dog for a walk (laughs) or feed yourself and take yourself for a walk, we fundamentally are communicating to other people that this life is worth living, that this life is worth embracing, that God gave us this life and it's valuable and it's good even when it feels miserable. And that's a powerful thing to communicate to our neighbor. And so um, I didn't ask to be my brother's keeper. That's not something I signed up for. But guess what? I am. And um, But as I said, I think this is good news too, because one of the things that you lose if you go through a period of depression is a sense of purpose. You feel like your life lacks meaning and purpose and direction. And when you recognize that actually just living life is an act of worship to God, then you recognize that you do have purpose. So um, it's a hard truth, but it's a truth nonetheless. I I wonder 
I, I think it's a really important point that when you see somebody else doing something, it becomes more plausible to do that ourselves. I think one of the realities, though, is that when we see uh, somebody that we care about struggling in any way, but particularly with something like depression or, or mental affliction, um, there is just this sense of, I don't know what to do and I, I don't know how to help. And I wonder if um, you can like tell us a story of where you've seen that play out or how you've experienced that, because that's also something that helps us understand what we can do and how we can actually uh, kind of show up in those moments. Yeah, I've had I have a number of of people in my life who are present whenever I need them. And I mean, there have been times and I think I mentioned this in the book where I have called people 5 minutes before a class starts because uh my anxiety is bad enough that I don't think I'm going to go to class. I don't think I'm going to teach and they'll pick up the phone. And um of course, life circumstances makes that difficult for most of us, but um, I've got enough people like that that I can, I can usually find someone who I can call and who will pray with me or talk to me and just be a physical or a, a physical presence because I think the voice, you know, the voice is is, is physical, um, uh, a physical presence to 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 give me that encouragement that I need to get through the day, to get up, to keep going. Um, so I think that's been very powerful in my own life and inspired me to, to think, um, think in those terms too, who, where can I be positioned? How can I position myself next to other people who are struggling so that when, when they need help, um, they have someone there who can speak to them, who can speak words of truth, because, uh, when you get lost in mental affliction, uh, you lose sight of reality in some way, and you need outside voices to to guide you home, which is you know cartographers. Yeah, so I love it. I love it. <laughs> just tying it all together. But um, yeah, but but no, I think being physically present is important. Whether it's the, your voice or your words, or actually showing up in person, if you can do that. Um, I, I think it's really valuable too to have friends very early on in my own uh, <laughs> mental health journey. I hate that phrase, the journey. Yeah, I belong a to journey. a community. Oh, community <laughs> on a journey. And, and you take vitamins and green That's pills everybody. too and do your yoga. <laughs> no, I don't. I, I don't. I should. My community. That's not. That's next on my journey. I haven't reached that part of the journey, the journey yet. It's a different season. It's a different season. Oh. I'm not at that season yet. Uh, I might never make it to that season. By the time I make it, I might not be flexible enough. So, um, yeah. So I think being physically present is important. But I, but, but very early on in my experience, I had people who would just tell me, um, who advocated for me, who told me, go get professional help. And um, that was really important to me. It may not be as important to younger people because they're growing up with less stigma around getting mental help uh, from professionals. But my generation of evangelicals, that was super sketchy. Like to have somebody say, you can use medications 
like legally like use them and it's appropriate like god's not gonna you know judge you for that that's not a sin i was like i needed someone to come along and say that um and that was that was important so i think advocating for people for our our neighbor advocating for them to seek professional help is 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 really important as well Mm, that's good you know there's so much about your book um that just reminds us that we our bodies, right, in a place and a time, um, not just ourselves and in affliction, but the way in which we belong to each other. Um, and so at the end of the book, you write about your daughter made you a, a feel better daddy card. Um, and that, you know, you say that it helped this broken 40 year old man get out of bed. Um, and, you know, how have you personally seen God's grace? through some sorts of embodied action um, in your own suffering. Uh, and then as we're recording this, it's Holy Week. Um, so I'd also like if we could tie in, you know, how has the suffering of Christ also helped to make sense of your own suffering in that way and helped helped encourage you to keep on? Yeah, so that story, it's a, it's a real real story of when I was stuck in my bed for a long period of time and um, my daughter came up and said, you know, she's seven. She doesn't really understand what's going on. She just knows that daddy doesn't feel well. And she made me this get better card and uh, said, I hope you feel better, dad. And um, that reminded me of something that I need to be reminded of too often which is that I have obligations and duties to my family that, um, because that little girl, her time with her dad is passing. And, um, to whatever extent I have the agency to get up out of bed and be present with my family through suffering, that's my duty. And, and sometimes it's really, and this is the thing, I talk about this in the book, this is the thing with mental affliction is that y- you often don't know how much agency you have. Like it's, there's not a doctor, a mental health professional can't come along and say, you know, you can be present with your family, you know, this percent or this many hours in a day or something, right? Like you don't know, uh, but you do know that they need you and you need to show up. And that's your task. That's your duty. So that's been viscerally a powerful experience for me. Um, as far as, as you know, Christ, um, you know, his prayer when he asks, you know, if this cup could pass from me uh, is, a, um, is a comfort because it's a reminder that um, as, as well, that as well as Paul's experience of the, the thorn in his flesh. Um, I say in the book that some thorns aren't coming out this side of paradise. And, um, and there are some cups that we have to drink to the dregs. And there aren't nice, tidy, safe, comfortable, cozy solutions, cures, ways out. You just have to go through. And uh, remembering that we serve a God who experienced that, who walked through, who drank the cup to the dregs, who, um, and, and who, who prayed if there was some other way, you know. Um, and yet he was obedient. That's, 
that's an encouragement. That's a model of, of what it means to, to face suffering and to face it bravely and to, to face it with courage. As I say in the book, you know, ordinary life takes a great deal of courage. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So, whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. Yeah, I mean, kind of following up on that, it seems to me like the whole goal of your book here is to both um, kind of encourage your reader, but to actually get the reader to action, to actually, you know, get out of bed, Um metaphorically or, or literally in some cases. And um, at one point, and you kind of touched on this a minute ago, but at one point in the book you write, in the end, it is always just you and God and your neighbor and the present choice to act. And you say this, which, which at the root is actually the choice to worship, and that's okay. And you referenced worship earlier. I, I wonder if you could kind of connect the dots between the action and worship here. I think this has, you know, just so many broader implications than simply getting out of bed, but maybe it starts there. Could you, could you unpack that for us? Yeah. Um, right. So in, in Romans, Paul tells us that, uh, it calls us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, uh, as a spiritual act of worship. And, uh, sometimes I think that, that, that spiritual act of worship is just getting out of bed and doing the things that God has called us to do, the simple next right things that God has called us to do. And when we do that, what we're doing is we're affirming that this life is fundamentally good. Uh, despite suffering, life is fundamentally good. And in that way, we're echoing God's, it is good, the act of creation, where we are agreeing, affirming with God that that our lives are good gifts that are, that our lives are, are fundamentally good gifts. So, um, yeah, I think that, that, the choice to act, the choice to fall back on others when you can't carry on by yourself, which can be often, uh, is a spiritual act of worship. It's a way of offering your body as a living sacrifice yeah, that, that that's that's so helpful, and and I think that um, I I wonder to what extent is this part of what you're thinking about here? Uh, as Christians, so often we think the solution is just like 
a mental, like it's, it's a learning thing. It's a, well, I read a book, um, which you sort of talked about earlier. Like you're not, you're not, um, pointing out the intellectual trends that led to this point as much as you are saying, like, let's figure out how to get out of bed. Um, I mean, how much of, of that is, is what you're trying to encourage us to do here? And maybe the better question is, how do how do we whether we're you know leaders in ministry whether we're Christians listening to this how do we take that step from just uh, you know reading your book about getting out of bed and and it becoming something that we can actually do in an, an act of worship that we begin to participate in? So for me, I can only speak for myself. For me, the the, um, the key has been to think about the next right thing just to do the next thing. Um, particularly when you're going through a period of suffering, uh, thinking big picture seems impossible. Like it seems impossible to think about career goals or going on vacation even, or, or what you're going to do on the weekend. Like those things can feel just too much, but what you can do is think about the next right thing. So what does it look like to do something now? What, what is it? What does it look like? Do I need to to chop vegetables and prepare dinner? Do I need to do the laundry? Do I need to get up and go for a walk? Do I need to just, just literally the next thing? And, and sometimes you need to break it down into smaller and smaller pieces. I need to take these covers off of my head. I need to put my shoes on. I need to put on a tie. People should wear ties. I think, <laughs> um, <laughs> advocate of ties. Um, is this a video podcast? No. This, I, I'm wearing a tie. I love it. I love it. So. Man, I, I appreciate it. I just, <laughs> I wish I didn't live in a place where like how casual can you possibly be was, was the fashion, you know, dictate for the average man. I know, just, you're, you're just trying to be all things to all people. I regularly I have this conversation <laughs> with my wife and a thought in my head more often where I, I've literally said, I just, as a pastor, I don't want to be the guy in every coffee shop that's always overdressed. If I was an architect, I would just embrace it. But as a pastor, I don't want to be like the overdressed. <laughs> as an architect, I would embrace it. I'm sorry, I lost the conversation, but, but that was good. Ties, uh, the importance of wearing ties, doing the next thing doing the next right thing. That's it. Doing the next right thing. I mean, I think that's where we have to do. Put on your tie or not put on a tie if that's what you need to be for your cultural context uh, at the coffee shop, unless you're an architect, in which case, apparently you better wear a tie. <laughs> all right. All right. So, Alan, um, how, how have you thought about like the the cultural context that we find ourselves in? Um, as you're approaching this book. And, and what I'm thinking about is this, um, it, it, it feels like um, we are living through a time where we don't expect uh, suffering or hardship to be a characteristic of our lives. Um, and, and we are also living in a time where talking about the reality of those things seems more, much more culturally acceptable, right? And if, if we kind of uh, paint with broad brush strokes, you can imagine going back to a time not that long ago in American cultural history where those are almost uh, flip-flopped, right? And, and so does that, does that fundamentally change um, 
the way we approach questions of mental health and and um, in, in our time. Isn't that isn't that strange? Yeah, it's it's <laughs> we're talking about mental health more and more, and yet we're doing it in so often we're doing it in ways that is has to do with identity and branding and projecting ourselves. And yet we have less and less expectation that we're going to suffer as a basic part of life, which is such right, a weird right. combination. And we're kind of blown away by the reality of, of, of its existence when it actually, you know, takes hold of us. And it does. And that's, that's one of the things I opened the book by talking about that. It's one of the realizations I had is growing up, I, I grew up around a lot of suffering, but I just thought that was an anomaly, that that was just a weird quirk of my personal experience and that most adults lived pretty comfortable lives. And then I got to know people and you know this as a pastor, right? So you, you'd start talking to people and you start getting into their lives and you're like, oh my, so you've got that going on. I didn't know that was a thing. Like I literally did not know that was a thing that happened to people and that they had to suffer with that. I don't know what to say now. And that that experience happened to me over and over and over until I realized, oh, okay, no, no, suffering's normal. Suffering's normal. And that's okay. Um, the question is, how do we suffer righteously? How do we suffer in a way that glorifies God and that uh, honors our neighbor, that 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 loves our neighbor, and that's not an easy question to answer for modern people because we do have this expectation that things are going great and that things are going to go great and things and and that if we have a problem, if we're suffering, it's because we made a mistake. It's because we're not doing enough. We don't have the right life coach or the right self help thing or we're not following the right YouTube or Instagram guru or whatever. Yeah. I think it is fascinating that we can hold, you know, culturally those two things and that are mutually exclusive together and be like, yes, this is the way that, that life works. Um, so, well, you know, but, how, and yeah, let me ahead. just, let me just say one thing, yeah, yeah. but we'd kind of do that with like a sort of a judgy attitude towards the 1950s too, where it's sort of like everybody then was so repressed or something and now we're so much more liberated and yet it doesn't seem like we're experiencing that sense of liberation culturally. It, it, it seems like if anything, we're more in bondage to um, the reality that life is not always amazing. Well, we think by liberating ourselves and throwing off everything, you know, any responsibility to God and neighbor, let's say, or, or place or our bodies, that that's what freedom will be. But, you know, as your second book, Alan, and my book, A Spacious Life, are talking about, that actual that freedom from outside constraints is actually a prison. And so it's finding those correct constraints that God gives us that we find true freedom, which might include suffering. Yeah. Yeah. Which often does really. Actually, it often might, does. I should, I should not say might. <laughs> it will. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, as we think about maybe that invitation to, to suffering um, or a, a, a way of moving through it, um, you know, it really comes back to this idea of imagination, which we've talked about earlier. And I always tend to talk about like we, we tend to live our lives by stories, right? And we... Um, whether or not we're aware of the stories. Maybe it is that story of, like you were saying, I thought it was an anomaly, right? I, I, I lived by this 
functionally by the story of an American dream of life is always going to go up and to the right and be a life of comfort and ease. But if when we actually get the biblical story as a counterpoint to that, um, how do we, what does it look like to actually get that story in us as Christians? And, and what, what ways have you found? I mean, you're a literature professor. Um, so whether it's in the classroom, whether it's in the church, whether it's yourself, how do we begin to kind of inculcate a Christian imagination for that better, bigger story? Mm, that's a good question. So I think um, uh, it, you, it's, it's a good question, and it's a helpful one because you, you mentioned that I'm a literature professor. And so, because uh, literature has helped me a lot, has helped me see what it feels like to, to you know, the realities of suffering. So for example, I use uh, Cormac McCarthy's The Road extensively in this book as a framework to discuss what what suffering looks like and why we suffer and why it's uh, good to endure even when life feels uh, meaningless um, because our subjective experience of, of meaninglessness is not reality um, is the short answer to that. And um, so I, I have found that um, reading good stories has been very powerful, reading them in communities, which I get to do. That's part of my privilege of being a professor. I get to do that. Um, but then, you know, by doing that, I'm also entering into the stories of the lives of my students, and I get invited into those stories, and that teaches me a lot as well. Um, and that's a very powerful experience. Um, and then, of course, being in scripture and being in church and just hearing the word preached and being reminded that our faith is the faith of, of, uh, you know, the heroes of faith. It's, it's a story of people who suffered and that was the normal experience. I mean, it's all about suffering. The Psalms are about suffering. Um, Job is about suffering. Uh, so much of this, of the Bible is about suffering and, throughout church history, we've known this, like that's not been, nobody needed to say that because it was just like, well, life is really hard and we know that. Um, but, but, but today for various cultural reasons, we, we, we obscure that fact. And so I think those are probably the ways that I've been able to, um, keep those cultivate, try to cultivate a Christian imagination. Um, that's really helpful. I, I I was actually reminded as we were kind of getting started and I was introducing you, um, sometimes when I come across your books, Alan, I have to remind myself that you're a professor of English because uh, that's not often <laughs> the way I think about you reading your books. And I don't mean that as a negative, but uh, you're you're immersed in teaching literature uh, to college students. Um, so that's that's really helpful and, and insightful. I, I wonder as we kind of think about concluding this um conversation what where are you seeking where are you seeing hope uh in the midst of um of of this whole conversation around mental health and and how do we um maybe those of us who are in leadership i mean besides encouraging people to uh, find professional help what would you want christian leaders to do when they or others are experiencing mental affliction and affliction and where where are you see, seeing hope in the midst of this conversation? Yeah, so 
if we back up and accept, as we've been talking about, the reality that that normal life involves a great deal of suffering in forms that you don't anticipate, then um, we need churches, we need communities of faith that are built for coming alongside of each other. And that's part of what I think needs to happen is we we want pastors, and I know pastors, you know, I think every pastor I've ever known is, has tried to cultivate this in this in their churches, a, uh, you know, organic communities of, of believers who support each other. And I do think the modern world requires us to be more intentional about that than, than, than we would like. We would like it just to just show up. But uh, See, that's my problem with the word organic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because yeah. the things that grow organically in my backyard are the things that I don't want growing. Yeah. And it takes a lot of work to make it look organic. <laughs> yeah. Or intentionality. Right. Yeah. 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 Intentionality. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I just think in terms of, of friendship, one of the things that I tell my students a lot is that the intentionality they're that they are putting into trying to find a spouse is the intentionality that they're going to need to put into finding friends as they get older, because friends aren't just going to very, very often friends aren't just going to show up. They're going to have to, you're going to have to hustle and find them. And I think that happens within the church, but we have communities where this should happen. And, um, so I think that that's really important, but, uh, but we do have an advantage by belonging to the church. And so, um, hopefully we can take advantage of that. Well, thank you so much, Alan. We appreciate you getting out of bed, putting on your top. And <laughs> yeah. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Alan. The Cartographers is hosted by Bryce Hales and Ashley Hales. It's edited by Nathan Michelle. The Cartographers is a production of the Willowbray Institute. Find out more at willowbray.org.